You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Son, I really enjoyed this. It's been a great day already. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us. What a great and awesome Savior we have. Uh, The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. As the Shona say in Zimbabwe, as Midian would say, Jesu Christu, the Shokomamwadi, the Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John the Beloved said, and we beheld His glory, the only... The glory of the only begotten, John said, we touched him, we handled him, we smelled him. We heard his voice, we hugged him, he hugged us. Oh, the great and awesome God who puts on the flesh of man and steps into his creation to do what only he can do, and that is to redeem us from our fallenness. We are not worthy. We are frail. We are depraved. We fall short. We are sinners. But by your grace and your mercy and your goodness, you save us, not by our righteousness, not by, as Paul said in Galatians, by our observance of the law, but by the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You credited God, you the Father credited his righteousness to our account. You took our sin and you credited that that to his account and he paid the full penalty of sin. Behold the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world as John the Baptist would cry out. So Lord Jesus, we love you. It's all about you. Your story is our story. And so Lord, we pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to us in these moments as you have already done. And Lord, we thank you for faithful servants like Janice McBride. Those people, dear Lord, who week after week, year after year, pour their hearts and lives into these young, impressionable minds with simple songs. As Reggie whispered to me, I hear these songs all the time in the car, at home, everywhere, because they're impressed in Abigail's heart, just as this worship is impressed into ours. So, Lord, we thank you for faithful service. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to tell you two stories. First of all, I was, um, Sheila and I were in Walmart in Flowood. We were paying for our groceries. And as we were at the register putting the stuff on the uh, conveyor belt and, and checking out, all of a sudden we heard this voice say, Brother Jeff, you know, and we looked up and there was this sweet lady, her and her husband, She was standing there with this big, bright smile on her face, and she came and she hugged us. We talked for a moment. We asked about her family. We asked how everything was going, and then soon she was on her way. The the cashier was oblivious to the dynamics of this relationship, knew nothing about this woman, nor really anything about us. Probably saw it as somewhat of a nuisance, as as taking a moment when it was time to check out, move people on. Let me tell you her story. 
this lady um, had visited her dad over in Florence. It was getting late in the evening. She took her two beautiful twins. They're just absolutely gorgeous kids. She put them in their car seats. She left coming home. As she was making her way home out in that particular area of twisting and winding roads, she lost control of the vehicle. And when she did, the vehicle flipped over and over. She was in a coma. Both of the twins were killed. I went to University Medical Center because she was in a coma for several days. They were just trying to stabilize her when they finally got her to the point that she was coherent and was coming around. She was asking about her children. Because I had been at First Baptist Fannin and had pastored there as an interim before I came here and the dynamics, all, all of that, and because I was close to her and her family, her husband and those around her had asked if I would come and be there and be a part of telling her that her children were no longer here. So we walked into the ICU. I know, Tamara, you've been there several times. We walked into ICU. We were standing there with her. Her head was in what they call a halo because her neck was broken. As we were there, the room was crowded with her family, with her husband. As he was on one side of the bed, I was on the other and he was holding her hand. Uh, the hallway at University Medical Center outside of ICU was filled. It was solid people, just filled. When all of a sudden it came to that moment, and the husband looked at me, and he was saying, it's time. And so we looked at her. Her name was Sally. We said, Sally, we have some very bad news. Both of your children died in the car accident. In that moment, she wailed out. And when she did, we groaned in that ICU unit, all the family and everybody. It was almost as if, Jeffrey, it was like a, it was like a moment of worship. Because in the same moment, we all groaned with her. I mean, it was in perfect unison, like a sound that would come from what the Holy Spirit would refer to as the groaning of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, it's, it, it, the people in the hallway heard us, and they groaned in that, in that wail. The cry of that mom went through us, went out into that hallway, and swept down that hallway. It was unbelievable. Doug, in that moment, Sandy, it reminded me of the ecclesia, stand at kaleo, the called out ones, because in that moment, the body of Christ felt the full pain of this mom as she had lost both of her children. In Walmart, because she eventually had a little baby, a little boy, we were asking how he was, how the family was. We wrapped our arms around her. And I wanted to say to the woman who was behind the cash register, if you only knew her story, you would close this, you would close this line, close this cash register, and probably as a young mother, you would look and say, I want to hear it too. Stories bring us together. Sally's story 
in some ways became our story. It taught me something, Reggie, about the body of Christ being a body of believers. Because when you marry people, you'll often say this, Dearly beloved, we are here assembled in the presence of God to unite this man, this woman in holy matrimony. And then you begin to talk about how that is fleshed out, how it's worked out. And one of the things that I always say in a wedding, when two people get married, when there's a joy, the joy is doubled. When there's a sorrow, it's cut in half. You share it with somebody. And, and in some ways, that's the church. Now, we've, we've been talking about the Bible. This is whose story? This is God's story. What's the theme of the Bible? Redemption. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. If you were looking at it like a puzzle, the cover, the picture on the cover is that of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's His story. And He's invited us to learn it and discover it and get to know it. Now, we've talked about CBT. We've talked about the chronological Bible. We only have one left. We've got to order more because you've been so intent on getting them. And, and, and look, I'm proud of that. And you'll see there, there's the Sunday school teacher's material and there is the uh, little bookmark. Now, up here, if you look, and this will help you to understand, in 2017, we're going through the chronological Bible. We're going to learn God's story. And we're going to teach you how to not only grasp and understand God's, God's story, but to get such a handle on the Bible that you're comfortable telling anybody about Christ, about the Redeemer, and about the story of God's redemption from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Malachi won't throw you off. You're going to know God's story, God's book, God's Bible. The Shokoramwadi, the Baiberi, as we would say in Zimbabwe. And so you look there, there are 14 heirs. And as you and I learn each one of those heirs, and we begin to get a good handle on them, we'll know our Bible from cover to cover. And we can turn anywhere in that Bible and tell people the story of redemption and talk about Christ. We looked at that first square up there with the tree and the globe and we talked about that blue arrow. It represents God speaking. The red arrow represents God acting. And that first square is creation. It's made up of five stories. It is the creation. Adam and Eve. The fall of man. Cain and Abel. Noah. The Tower of Babel, those stories from Genesis 1 to Genesis eleven twenty seven, And then we talked about that second square there. That's the patriarchs. That is the patriarchs. Father, the father Abraham, the father of our faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then from there we go to the Exodus. That's the book of Exodus. And we move there from the life of Joseph and we transition to the book of Exodus. And that's the Exodus. Those, those swords there that are crossed, that's the conquest. That's where you are in Sunday school this morning as you look at the book of Joshua. That's the conquest. When you look at those arrows, you see those four arrows, different colors. That is a time of the judges. 
when they were in and out of rebellion and sin and were repenting and constantly turning back, that crown there is the crowning of a king. Saul, David, and Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. It's all of that. Well, it's all there. And that, that first crown, that's, that's Saul, that's David, King David, and that's Solomon. That's the book of Samuels, uh, the book of Kings. That's in Chronicles. And then that second, the two uh, two crowns there. That square is the divided kingdom because after the death of Solomon, the kingdom would split. The northern kingdom to the north would be under the rule of Jeroboam. The southern kingdom would be under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And then those chains there in, the, in that picture there as we come back down, those chains represent a time when Israel was in exile, in bondage. That's Daniel. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's when Nebuchadnezzar, well, the Assyrians would take the northern kingdom. Eventually, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar would defeat the Assyrians, and he would come in and take the southern kingdom. And that's the Babylonian captivity. That's Habakkuk. Then all of a sudden, we see that that twist and that turn there. And that's Nehemiah where we just finished. That's the Israelites, the Jews, returning back to the land of Israel, leaving Babylon and coming home under the Medes and the Persians. That empty square there, God speaks, God acts, is the silent years, the intertestamental years. That's your Old Testament. And if you can learn those first nine there, you'll have such a handle on the Old Testament, on God's story, on the Old Covenant, that any time you turn to the Old Testament or anybody asks you a question, you'll be the counselor, the one that can give an answer. I'm tired of us doing all the work, Reggie. I'm ready for us to have a bunch of Bible scholars in this room who know their Bible that well. I want you to be so excited about God's Word that you look like these moms with their cameras up here trying to get pictures, get as close as you can. I'm tired of you coming in late. I want you here early. If we were giving away $10,000, every one of you would be here exactly at the right time. You're getting something far greater than $10,000. You're getting the opportunity to draw near God, the chronological Bible. This journey that we're taking through this Bible as we learn this right here is going to shape and affect our lives corporately and individually. I like Dwayne. He came into the office. Dwayne, I can't let you do this yet. At least let me order the Bibles. Dwayne said, I need, uh, I need one. Well, give me two more. And we looked at him, Dwayne said, well, I'm going to put one at work because when I, when I go to work, sometimes I forget my Bible and I want to keep up with the chronological Bible. I want to read through it. Boy, that's discipline. Now wait and let me order some more. <laughs> but anyway, this is the chronological Bible. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I won't keep you long. I'll, I'll be sensitive to the time. But I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter Chapter 11, verse 6, I think this is such a great passage. Iva May, who helped do some of the chronological Bible study material, Dr. Stan May, Ph.D., a, a brilliant man, a dear friend of mine, who came and taught our Sunday school teachers about CBT, the chronological Bible. Iva May said this was one of her favorite verses in all the Bible. Now let me read it here. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who casually seek him. And all God's people said, Oh my goodness, no you don't. Amen means so be it. I just misquoted the word of God. You should have said, No, pastor, that's not correct. You shouldn't have said amen. You should have said, Oh no. Now let me read it again. And without faith, it is impossible. Now watch that. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly, diligently seek Him. Ivan May made this statement. I thought it was so good. I want to give you two quotes she made, and I thought they were so good. And she was teaching in the DVD material Uh, to Bellevue Baptist Church. That's pretty good qualifications to be able to give us a little bit of input. She made this statement. She said, God does not disclose himself to a casual seeker. He's too grand. Isn't that great? Doug, did you hear that? God does not disclose himself to the casual seeker. He's too grand. And the patriarchs That second period there, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these were men and women in that period in the Old Testament as God began to bring the family of God together and the story of His redemption, that is the story of men and women who diligently, passionately were seeking God. Let me ask you something. Are you that kind of person? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are men who sought God. Now listen, they were flawed faith followers. In fact, let me read to you one last quote here uh, by Iva May. She said, we like our Bibles served up, cooked, and appealing. We like it sanitized. We like our Bibles kind of served, already pre-chewed with us, for us. Kind of like a bird spitting what it's regurgitated into the mouth of its little bird, uh, little young birds in the nest. But she said, our Bible is real and it's raw and it's a real God with messy lives of people, men and women who are struggling to live a righteous life. Is that you? Let me tell you something. It's not about perfection. It's about a process. When you and I became saved, Jeff, when we, got, when we became a Christian, when we gave our life to Christ, we began a journey. This is salvation, and now sanctification is the process by which God is conforming me and Jeremy into the image of Christ. It's a process. I'm not going to achieve perfection until I get to heaven. Ruth Graham, Billy and Ruth Graham were riding along and, and Ruth smiled and she laughed and said, well, Billy, that's me. He said, what? She said, that's me. Well, they come to a place in the road where it said men working ahead and it said under construction, work in progress. And, and Ruth Graham started laughing and she said, you know, Billy, isn't that us? We are a work in progress. We're under construction. We're not there yet. 
That's what the patriarchs... Well, real quickly, let me, let me give you... We, you know, in the patriarchs, after we get into the latter part of Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12... In fact, take your Bibles and turn to... Let's go back Genesis chapter 12. I know some of this is review, but for some of you in this room, you may be hearing this for the first time. Because in order for you to understand the story of redemption... You have to understand the patriarchs. There are three, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's redemption. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, just like Sally had a story, just like Sheila and I knew Sally's story, a pivotal moment in her life when God was busy working in a way that would shake all of us in the loss of her children. When you look at the patriarchs, there are pivotal moments in their life and they're contained in the scripture and the moment in Abraham's life is the Abrahamic covenant when God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your people, your father, your kindred, go to a land I'll show you. Look at this. I love James McDonald. James McDonald, he's this big old guy, got a big old goatee, gray goatee, and he said, everybody look this way. And he said, this is what it means. And he kept doing this behind the pulpit. And what he was saying is that God told Abraham, Abraham, you've got to take a step of faith. You see, that's faith. Well, if God will show me, then I'll do it. No, sometimes God doesn't show you because it is impossible to please God without faith. And sometimes God asks you to do something that you cannot see. He asks you to step into what you think is nothing. And God says, when you step, I'll be there. We said in our Sunday school lesson this morning, we laughed when we were talking about Daniel. You remember? We said that Moses probably did not see the sea, Red Sea. God, if you'll divide the Red Sea, then I'll lead him through it. God said, no, you, everybody do your leg like that. Because I believe that when Moses' foot, when his toes hit the Red Sea, all of a sudden, shoop, that sea began to part. And so Abraham, when you define his life in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, God enters an agreement with Abraham. He says, Abraham, you'll be the father of the faith. You'll, this is where the story of redemption, Abraham. You'll be a priest, a, a nation of priests. And out of your loins shall come the Redeemer. Abraham, you go. I'll show you the land when you get there. And I'll curse those who curse you, and I'll bless those who bless you. Wow, how powerful that is. But Abraham is flawed. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Read on down verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Abram, Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, he said, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but will let you live. He forgot the promise of God. 
Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Everybody look this way. The patriarchs are flawed. We're all flawed. In Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, God enters into an agreement with Abraham. We don't read a few verses later before we find Abraham in a, in a famine and instead of going to God, he goes to Egypt. He leaves the land that God told him that he was giving him. Because he did not believe God. And then he tells Sarah, his wife, he says, Sarah, we've got to lie. We've got to lie. You've got to tell people that you're my sister. And God's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to have to beat some things out of you in order to make you the man that I would have you to be. You see, faith followers are God's work under construction. When you flip over, and we don't have time, but if you do, if you flip over to Genesis 22, you find there that a faith follower in, in Abraham's life, what we're saying is Abraham had some pivotal moments. Patriarchs in the Old Testament had pivotal moments in their life when God was doing something great. And in Genesis chapter 22, this faith follower, the father of the faith, the father of the faith, Abraham, the covenant family, in Genesis chapter 22, is told to give up. is to give up the one thing that he valued most of all. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and take him and sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. It's a picture of Calvary. We have Abraham. Then we come to Isaac. Isaac is kind of the quiet patriarch. Uh, Isaac in, in Genesis 22 is the sacrifice. He's probably 16, 17 years old. He's a young man. Abraham looks at Isaac and says, Isaac, get the wood ready. So Isaac says, we've got the wood, we've got the fire. Isaac looks at Abraham, his father, he says, but where is the sacrifice? Isaac is the sacrifice. Isaac is carrying the very, the very, uh, the, 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 the timbers on his shoulder. Isaac is the one who's the sacrifice, but again, it's a picture of the Redeemer. It's the picture of redemption. It's the picture of God requiring out of a faith follower, even though he's flawed, sacrifice. Genesis chapter 24 is the father Abraham finding a wife for Isaac, and he sends, and, and, and Isaac well, the, the servant of Abraham, Eliezer, is sent back to his people there back in that other land. And he says, go, and he finds Rebekah there. And you can read that story. But again, it's a life-changing moment, but it's a picture of the Holy Spirit and the church. But again, Isaac is flawed. I know I'm moving quickly, but in Genesis chapter 25, when you look there, Isaac looks at Rebekah, and they're unable to have children, and he cries out to God, and God, and God gives Isaac and Rebekah a pregnancy, and in that womb, in that pregnancy, there are twins, and they are fighting in the womb. And Rebekah and Isaac are troubled and worried about it. And they go to God and God said, There are two nations and they are warring in your womb. And the younger will win. The older will serve the younger. Because just as God chose Abel's offering just as God's covenant promised through Seth, just as God's covenant promise would come through Abraham, now Isaac, God will send his covenant promise 
through that child, Jacob. And when they're born, when they come out of the womb, Jacob is clasping the heel of his brother Esau. Esau comes first, and every woman in this room who's delivered, when I worked in an ambulance service, what you did not want to see was a limb come first. It was a worst-case scenario in a pregnancy, and especially if you were somewhere remote and you were having to deliver. You could not just about deliver that baby without damaging that child. Jacob is clasping the heel of his brother Esau as they are being born. Why? Because Jacob and through his lineage and his loins will come the Redeemer. But Jacob is flawed. He diligently seeks God, but he does it in dishonest ways. He cheats his brother Esau out of the blessing with a pot, with a porridge, with a stew. And then later on, he and his mom, Rebecca, they dress him up in such a way that he can pass for Esau. And he goes into the tent of his half-blind father. And when his father says, he says, he says, who is that? Jacob, is that you? Jacob lies. He's the underhanded. His name means deceiver. His name means liar. He said, Father, it's your son Esau. Then he steals the blessing of the firstborn. And then he runs for his life. Rebecca, in order to save the life and to, and to get rid of the mess that she has created, sends him to her brother Laban. And it is there that God will break Jacob and cripple him and bring him to brokenness. And by Genesis chapter 32, when he comes back to meet his grown brother Esau, his life is forever changed because he wrestles with an angel of the Lord. And the angel is literally dislocating his hip. I can't raise my left arm. I look at some of you with your hands raised and I think to myself, God, let me raise this hand. But I can't get it up there. It won't move. Because it's dislocated and the tendons are torn, the muscle is torn away from the bones and I can't lift it no higher than that. And I can do my hand and I can go that far and no farther and I can't get my hand up to praise God. God took the hip socket of Jacob. It says that a team of horses can't pull your hip out of socket. He pulls his hip out of socket. Esau is, I mean, Jacob is clinging to the angel of the Lord, crying out, God bless me. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Redeemer, the whole, the story, what the story is all about, says, what is your name? Last time he heard that, he was in his father's tent and he lied. This time crippled and broken, hip dislocated. He's clinging to the angel of the Lord and he says, my name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a usurper. I'm underhanded. I'm dishonest. It's a picture of repentance. And the angel of the Lord said, you'll no longer be called Jacob, you'll be called Israel. It's a fascinating story. It's God's story. Jacob has 12 sons. He's flawed. Those 12 sons hate bigger, fight. Reuben sleeps with a concubine, one of the mothers of one of his sons. Life is so chaotic. Rachel, the only one that he really loved, 
She dies in birth to Benjamin, giving birth to Benjamin. She had two children. Rachel had two children, Joseph and Benjamin. She dies giving birth to the youngest of the 12 sons of Benjamin. The sons hate the other sons, the brothers to Joseph. They hate him. When Jacob gives him a coat of many colors, stay with me, we're getting ready to end. When Jacob gives, but you could sit for two hours at Tinseltown. Three hours for the NFL game. And here your pastor is rushing through the story so you can get out. When in other parts of the world, they meet all day and at night to hear the story. But we'll close. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. They take him, they throw him in a pit. They get 20 pieces of silver for him. They kill a lamb, they take the blood, they put it on the coat of many colors, they carry it back to Jacob, and they tell Jacob, undoubtedly, Joseph, your son, was killed by a wild animal. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. While he's sold into slavery in Egypt, he rises from the pit. He goes through a problem with Potiphar's wife, from there to the prison, and finally to the palace. And in the end, the close of Genesis is he forgives his brothers. Let me close this out. You go ahead and stand. Let me give you, let me give you some, something to hang your hat on. When you look at the story in these first two, the creation and the patriarchs, and especially the patriarchs, what you learn is this. God plugs interesting people into his story. God plugs interesting people into his story. Number two, God is a real God who uses real people who are struggling to live righteous lives and are struggling in the faith, to walk by faith. Number three, God will test those who follow him to build into them faith and endurance. Number four, we can be comforted in knowing that our struggles to walk were the patriarch's struggles as well. The patriarchs are not superhuman. Rather, they are men and women with warts and blemishes, skeletons in the closets, and sins which thus so easily would beset them. Number five, the God for the patriarchs is a God for you and I. Number six, God is building a kingdom of faith followers. They may be flawed, and in the patriarchs, they're severely flawed. But sometimes when the accuser of the brethren is telling me how disqualified I am, how unworthy I am, I can look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I can say, God, if you use them, you can use me. And as you close out Joseph's life in Genesis, he's not really the fourth patriarch. Really the fourth patriarch is Judah. Because through Judah, the loins of Judah would come Jesus, the Redeemer. 
the one who slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar, the one who gave birth to Perez and Zerah, the one who brought such heartache and grief, oh, who was drunk when he slept with his daughter-in-law. I mean, it couldn't get much better. His daughter-in-law deceives him. You're talking about a flawed man. He was flawed. And yet when, jo when Jacob is dying in Egypt and he goes to his sons, he looks at Reuben, he says, Reuben, you're as unstable as water. He looks at Simeon and Levi. He said, I wouldn't come into your tent because you're men of violence. And then he comes to Judah. And he says, Judah. His wife is dead. He's lost two sons. His third son is to be married to his daughter-in-law who's a widow. He won't give his third son to her, Tamar. So she poses as a prostitute when he goes to make his sacro, when he goes to sell his his uh, produce and passes herself off and gets him to give her a chain and his staff, and then when he's getting when they bring the news to Judah, eventually I'm rushing. When they bring the news to Judah, your daughter-in-law is a prostitute. She's sleeping around because she's pregnant. Judah said, "Well, we're going to take her out there and stone her. Levitical law. We're going to kill her." And so the leaders of the community, they bring Tamar out and they throw her down there before Judah, the father-in-law. And just about the time they're getting ready to take her life, picture of Jesus in John 8. Tamar reaches and she pulls out his, his set of keys, his chain, his and only his, and then gives his staff. And Judah looks and says, those are mine. He realizes the baby she's carrying is his child. And in that moment, he says, she's more righteous than I am. Jacob, when he's dying, he comes to Judah and he says, Judah, kings will come out of you. And the king of kings. This is a fascinating book. Its stories will shape your life forever. And what does God require out of you and I? Just look at Him and say, God, I want to be written in. Give me a part in it, God. I'll take whatever little small part. And one day in an office... I got out on my knees and I said, God, write me into your book. Give me a small part, God. I repent of my sin. And I ask your son, Lord Jesus Christ, to come in and be the Lord of my life and cover my sin. Just like Ayla did a, few, a while back, just like some of you've done. And in that moment in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb of God wrote my name into that book. He wants to write your name into His book. And He wants to do it today. How? By just repenting of your sin, saying, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to You and we praise You, Lord. Lord, I feel like sometimes in trying to do this, I get so excited and I get into the stories of your word and the stories of men and women who've shaped and molded and made not only the word of God, but have 
been a part of our family. We, we think of our father, the faith, Abraham. We think of Isaac. We think of Joke, uh, Jacob. We think of Judah. And we think of uh, so many. Joseph. Everybody look this way. When you start reading the chronological Bible, you're going to be in Genesis. And right in the middle of Genesis is going to be the book of Job. And you go, what, 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 what's Job doing there? Many believe that Job, the book of Job was written by Moses. Many believe that the story of Job, that Job was the son of Issachar, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Job took place during the time of the patriarchs. And so right in the middle of Genesis, you're going to find Job. It's an adventure. Lord, we praise you. We love you with our eyes open. And we commit, dear Lord, to learn this story like we've never learned it before. And if somebody in a, in a Walmart checkout will give us half a chance, and they start telling us of our problem, we'll think of a story out of your word, and we'll say, well, you know, I can remember. As a teacher, Stephanie, you'll be able to look and say, when a young lady looks at you and she's going through a hard time, you say, well, you know, I remember how God used Tamar. Let me tell you the story of Tamar. It's juicy. <laughs> it's really good. You'll love it. He uses flawed followers. And all God's people said,